Hello and welcome to the Bang to Rights podcast. My name is Peter Murray. I'm a lecturer in multimedia journalism here at Manchester Metropolitan Uni. I'm joined as usual by my MMU colleague, Jeremy Craddock. Hi, Jez. Hi, Pete. And by Dave Porter. Hello, Dave. Hi, Pete. And we're back in our familiar seats in the studio after our frantic foray into Brexit last week. Jez and I, we recorded it in the staff room in the end, didn't we? We did, yes. It was it was very exciting, wasn't it? It was, uh, yeah, an interesting <laughs> departure. Um, let's hope we don't have to do that all over again. Yeah. Um, so we're back in a more familiar format too as well. We're looking at issues in court reporting and regulation. We'll hear from Ipso on their new guidance on covering sex offences. And in a moment from one of MMU Law School's experts on young people and the criminal justice system. System. Mary Maguire. Hello, Mary. Welcome to Bang to Rights. Hello, Pete. Remember, you can tweet at us with any comments and questions about the show at Rights Bang. We'd like to hear from you, really would like to hear from you. But first, and this is an actual first, regular listeners to the podcast will remember that last month we reported on how broadcasters are now able to record pictures and audio from some judgments at the Court of Appeal. And we featured a case in point the appeal against the jailing of three anti fracking activists sentenced to 16 months in jail over the Quadrilla protests on. Preston New Road near Blackpool. Well, one of them, Richard Roberts, has been speaking to our reporter Amy Vieira from the Northern Quarter about his experience of the trial and his time in jail. MMU's Department of Sociology basically organised the No Small Fracking Matter uh, talk, which basically just aimed to shine some light on the topic of fracking and also looked at how police respond and assess protests. Um, I had the opportunity to uh, interview one of the speakers, Richard Roberts, who was uh, jailed for protesting against fracking. And when I, when I spoke to him, he actually said that when he was being taken to prison, you know, even the police officers were saying, you shouldn't be going to jail, you've done nothing wrong. Um, and he also spoke of the whole process after finding out he was going to jail. When we were found guilty, then it became a reality that we could be sent to prison. And then we had three weeks to wait until sentencing day. So we were bailed until then. We were expecting the worst then. We, we'd sort of cancelled all that. You, know, you have to cancel your bills and move your stuff into storage and tell everyone you'll be uncontactable for a year. That was the most scary time of it, really, the trial and, and the waiting for sentencing. Once I got out the doors, the back of the courtroom into custody, then, uh, yeah, a sense of relief that, well, it is what it is. Um, and we'll just have to make the best of it. So Richard Roberts there, um, speaking last night, what, what else did he tell you about what, what kind of he learned from the, the period that he was in jail? He told me that being in jail just inspired him to learn a lot more about fracking around the world. You know, even though he went to jail for pro- protesting against it, it's still just very something that he's very much passionate about. Um, and uh, he's even educated himself on British law, you know, because it's not something he was aware, like he, did, he never knew he could go to prison for that protest. Spending four days on a lorry, then waiting a whole year for trial, and then going through a two-week trial, and then waiting for sentencing and going to prison, spending three weeks in prison, and then getting lots of interviews from the media about why I went to prison, that's been over a year, uh, pretty intense um, time to learn a lot more about fracking, um, about the policing of fracking, about the law, around protesting, and I've learned a huge amount. 
ironic really that someone should go to jail for protesting and then in the process of being in prison they spent they have time on their hands to to investigate all of that and to learn more more about it what did so what else did you pick up from from the meeting overall because there were there were other speakers there as well weren't there uh yes so there was dr will jackson and he basically just went over how police assess uh protests you know how when they basically just think it's a problem and people have gone too far. So it was good to sort of get some, gain some knowledge on how that works, you know, why some people get arrested and other people don't. And it was just overall very uh, educating and very engaging because um, I personally learned a lot more about fracking. You know, I didn't have a lot of knowledge on it and I, I basically know what it is now, you know, and the impact it has globally and why so many people are angry about it. So, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Okay, well, Amy Vieira from Northern Quarter, thanks very much indeed. Thank you. And we hope Amy's report will be just the first of many by our Northern Quarter reporters here on Bang to Rights. And if you're covering a story for the MMU Journalism News website and you think there's a legal or ethical angle in there, get in touch and we'll get you on the show. Now, with the future of one of the UK's biggest local newspaper groups still in doubt after Johnson Press narrowly avoided liquidation over the weekend, MPs from all parties pressed the Culture Secretary Jeremy Wright on Monday about what he planned to do to safeguard the scores of titles, thousands of jobs and millions of pounds worth of pensions still at risk after the company was effectively taken over by its creditors. The Wigan MP, Lisa Nandy, was one of them. You don't need a review to tell us that this is a story of pure greed. A handful of people have creamed off huge profits and left a debt-laden, struggling company in the hands of hedge funds with yet again staff paying the price. And that hedge fund rescue package will be of little comfort to those smaller titles like the Wigan Evening Post and the Wigan Observer that will not prove lucrative for asset strippers and face a very uncertain future at best. Will he intervene to make sure that long-term guarantees are provided for these smaller titles? They're not just the lifeblood of local democracy, as he rightly said. They're also the only talent pipeline that is left for young working class people to break into journalism and those young people are left today wondering what on earth the future holds for them. Several MPs focused their questions on the current and future pension rights of Johnson Press staff. Another asked if the government would consider reforming the Localism Act to allow communities to take over newspapers if they were at risk of closing. And the Livingston MP, Hannah Bardell, wanted to know if the government would consider following the Norway model. No, not that one, but the country's relationship with the EU, but an ownership model for local newspapers. And I would commend to him Leslie Riddick's Filmation, which looks at the model that yeah, Norway yeah, uses yeah. of funding the second newspaper in every region in Norway. And will he look at that model? Will he compel uh, uh, Francis Kierkegaard to include that? to look at what options are available for workers because we think of them today and we think of their jobs and their year, roles. Year. Among other MPs who joined in a series of urgent questions to Jeremy Hunt were a number of former journalists and media workers. One of them, Rebecca Pau, is MP for Taunton Dean. Having worked in the media for a greater part of my life and for many years as a freelance, I really do understand the importance mm-hmm. of our local newspapers and our all of these publications, the type of publications that Johnson Press pub- 
publishes, not just for disseminating news, but for training journalists and a place to start learning your trade. And then they go on nationally. We need these people. But could the Secretary of State please give assurances that, you, that he is taking high-quality journalism to heart and that in looking at in the review, he will look particularly at that balance between what I call traditional publications and the online publishers, because we need balance and fairness. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, Mr Speaker, yes, I'm, I'm happy to do that. In fact, the first newspaper I ever appeared in, Mr Speaker, was in fact my honourable friend's local newspaper, so it has a particular place in my heart. But she is right. One of the things that we expect Dame Frances Cairncross to do and that we will wish to act upon is to preserve good quality, well-sourced, authoritative journalism at local and at national level. It is fundamental to the way in which we hold power to account, and it's important, we believe, as part of the antidote to so-called fake news on which her select committee has done such good work. The Culture Secretary, Jeremy Wright, there, and he made great play in several of his answers of the fact that he might have to take on a semi-judicial role in any decisions about the Johnson Press Pension Fund and therefore couldn't comment on issues around that. He also announced that Dame Frances Cairncross will be holding a session of her inquiry into the future of high-quality news provisions at Parliament next week. So we'll definitely keep an eye on that for next week's episode of the show. But for now, what does the future of Johnson Press hold? Um, we've got the issue about pensions, we've got the issue about jobs, we've got the issues about titles. Jez, where, where's it all going? Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's a worrying time, isn't it? Certainly if you're a journalist uh, working at Johnston Press and, you know, I, I can sympathise having been through, a you know, this kind of process with a different company. But, uh, you know, even though it, it seems to have been safe for the time being, what's going to happen to titles going forward? You know, as Johnston Press, or the, the new consortium, looks to cut its costs, you know, does it mean that we're going to see certain titles closing, maybe some of the smaller... Uh, less prof- profitable titles are they going to be closed jobs that will will be lost and also communities that have had some of these newspapers for hundreds of years in some cases are they going to no longer have a local uh, newspaper that's holding power to account yeah one of the MPs one of the, the DUP MPs um, raised this uh, that his local newspaper, Johnson Press new, local newspaper, was able to report the American Declaration of Independence <laughs> that had been around that long. So, uh, yes. yeah, mm. a, lot, a lot of history involved in this. I mean, yeah. the, the National Union of Journalists, for example, they're picking up particularly on the issue of pensions. Yes. As we heard, the MPs there talking about uh, about the, the, the kind of provision of local news and so on. Dave, what's, yeah, where do you it, think it's, it's all it's going? It's interesting. You know, pensions are a massive thing. And unless I'm wrong, uh, you know, just in our own region, the, the Oldham Cron... Um, sadly went uh, into demise mm. you know, not many months ago as, and I was told by an insider, listen this was all down to the uh, the pensions provision it was actually taken out of the uh, equation and we were still a going concern yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it's going through journalists, you know, I was just reading this morning on uh, over front page uh, Johnston have been uh, contacted by the Pensions Protection Fund there's a £300 million shortfall um, so those journalists left uh, are looking at a kind of eighty, ninety percent uh, pensions, mm. um, you know, benefit for future. It's not as if we're like massively well paid uh, in local papers, uh, and to face this you know, this second kind of a blow, um, mm. yeah, it's tragic, really. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it's uh, the, the the thrust of the debate in the Commons was um, uh, the the Labour Party kind of launched the question on the back of the pensions issue, and mm. it looks like a number of Labour Party MPs um, and and shadow ministers are going to be following that particular bit. And so Jeremy Wright, I think, was keen to steer the issue onto local press and to steer it off in the direction of uh, Francis Cairncross, as if that's not really my problem and he made a he, as I said there he, he tried to he, he sort of ducked some of the questions because he's got the semi-judicial role or may have the semi-judicial role over the fa- the financing of it and then he ducked some of the questions by saying well Francis Cairncross is looking at that so in terms of I think the debate in the end it was th- three quarters of an hour of it oh. but it was kind of it ran into the sand to some extent and I think yeah. a number of backbenchers were pretty frustrated by that both sides of the house to be honest were, were a bit frustrated by all of yes. that well every MP has a local <clears throat> you know constituency paper or should have Yeah. Uh, I mean it's interesting that you know Ken the same week as the Facebook announcement uh, of donating is it six million pounds by the NCTJ to create eighty uh, kind of effectively local democracy yeah. reporters, mm-hmm. similar to the BBC. Um, so it's interesting how these how it's emerging. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. lots of expectation and pressure on the Cairncross review to come up with a, a solution to all these problems yeah. as well. Yeah, so Jeremy Wright reminded us we will hear from the Cairncross review eventually. They're due to report um, early in the new year, but uh, we'll, we will come back to that next week um, if, if I can get hold of some of the material from Francis Cairncross' visit to um, to the House of Parliament. Um, on the back of the Johnson Press um, issue, it, it sounds like it might be quite an, uh, quite a fiery affair, so we'll, mm. we'll see about that. Staying slightly with politics, there's growing pressure on the government now to change the law covering how criminal offences by young people are kept on record, sometimes for life, and sometimes with the result that they're unable to work as adults in education, in the NHS, or in a large number of other jobs across England and Wales. There have been two attempts in the last year in the House of Commons to overhaul the law, but both appear to have ended up in the parliamentary long grass. These came after a report last year by the Tottenham MP David Lamy, who found that the current system was heavily disproportionate uh, in its effect on black, Asian and minority ethnic young people. He found that despite making up just 14% of the population, men men and women make up a quarter of all prisoners, with more than 40% of all young people in custody in England and Wales coming from BAME backgrounds. At the moment, custodial sentences for more than four years are erased after seven years, but MPs on the Justice Select Committee last year called for this to be reduced to four years. So, Mary Maguire from the the law school, what's... um, the the issue about this kind of two strikes and you're out thing that if someone commits a relatively minor offence when they're under eighteen because they've done it twice it might be as as small as a police caution that they receive but that stays on the record pretty much indefinitely. Yes, absolutely. And one of the problems with this is that we have, well, for a start in the UK we have one of the lowest ages of criminal responsibility mm. at t- ten, um, and. So from a very early age, when young people are still forming their ideas and, for, and taking risks that we would expect young people to take as they grow up, um, young people with relatively minor convictions, including cautions, can end up having a criminal record for life. Uh, while some of these under the Rehabilitation of Offenders Act are expunged after a certain period of mm. time, there are certain categories of jobs um, and certain categories of uh, study and professional qualifications where they will still have to disclose all of their criminal convictions, even if they're spent. 
Theresa, uh, Theresa Villiers raised this and she had this 10 minute bill that she tabled in, in the House of Commons a couple of weeks back and she mentioned um, for example I think one of her constituents an electrician mm. who's trying to get work in building schools around the constituency and he wasn't allowed to do that because it would involve him getting into the education system mm. because he'd got a couple of old convictions mm. when he was a much much younger man. Is that, I mean how typical is a story like that? I think it's fairly typical because I think one of the things we don't have so well is a, a proper regulatory system for ensuring that employers are not themselves using the dis disclosure and barring service to disproportionately um, affect young people so that they're counting and considering certain types of convictions as being relative to the employment. For example, somebody building in a school is unlikely to be having one-to-one -one individual access mm. with a young person. Mm. So even relatively serious offences should not necessarily matter in that job. Yeah. Now, the, the government's defending this position in, in the Supreme Court at the moment, aren't they? What's, what's, yes. what's going on there? Well, for some reason, the government have decided to defend um, themselves against the uh, claim brought in the Court of Appeal um, that it was a breach of young persons' Article 8 rights, which is the right to a private and family life, and that the government themselves were disproportionately... Um, oh, what's the word? <laughs> that the young uh, young people themselves were um uh, kind of flouting the law that one one of the things about the article 8 uh, the european convention on human rights article 8 protects the right to a private and family life uh, while no one would doubt that there are certain types of um conditions that might limit the the exercise of those rights they have to be prescribed by law they have to be necessary in a democratic society and they have to be proportionate mm. and the current case that's going through the um, uh, Supreme Court is arguing that the use of the Police and Criminal Evidence Act, the use of the Rehabilitation of Offenders Act and the whole disclosure and barring system itself uh, is a disproportionate interference in those rights to be forgotten, the right to privacy, the right to uh, mm. be rehabilitated. Some of should, yeah, Dave, yeah, on you go. Oh, no, I'm just thinking, it has parallels, actually, because privacy is being used increasingly by uh, adults uh, as, uh, and by business people and potentially criminals to um, effectively put injunctions upon a reporting of criminal investigations. But having said that, I, I, you know, I agree with Mary, very good point she made there. I, I heard of a case where a student who, uh, well, a woman who went and took a teaching degree and she'd got two very minor offences at primary school. She'd uh, set a bin on fire with friends, you know, the kind of thing. And then she got into a minor fight. But actually, both of those uh, involve the police somehow. And um, and she'd actually gone through the whole process of doing a teaching degree. And wasn't until it came out at the end that she realised, mm. because of the enhanced mm. DBS, basically she'd wasted all that time. And it was disproportionate. Um, so a very, you know, Ill good illustration maybe of the difficulties which people face. Yeah, absolutely. And also one of the, th the other things to remember is that young people are not necessarily always confident enough to ask for representation on mm. arrest. Um, and we do know that the stop and search laws disproportionately affect black and ethnic mm. minority young people. Mm. So we have a group of marginalised young people who, by the government's own admission, are disproportionately more likely to be stopped and searched. Um, so their chances of being mm. found or offered a caution as an alternative to going through the justice mm. process and being defended properly and having some independent legal representation mm. is very high. But they won't realise at the time that that no. might, that the, the length of time that might stay on the record. I mean, the, 
part of the thrust of Theresa Villiers' bill, which has now been withdrawn, mm. and we'll, we'll maybe explain why, um, been withdrawn was was to limit the number of offences that this this long record might. Uh, take account of, uh, and then there's the the, the Justice Sub uh, Select Committee, which I mentioned, that wanted to reduce the the length of time that these things might stay on the record. Is uh, are they are they kind of pushing at an open door now with the government that the government may, on the back of the the Supreme Court decision, they may feel well we we're going to have to change this. I mean, certainly there seems to be some support for changing the current system in Northern Ireland, for example. There is an opportunity for young people who have spent convictions to go back and have their cases reconsidered, not not the original cases reheard, but to have their records considered to determine whether or not there's still a risk to society or the um, convictions, previous convictions should be completely deleted from their record. I mean, one of the principles of the Youth Justice Board is not just to prevent offending and to prevent reoffending, but to ensure that young people are successfully rehabilitated. Mm. Now, without yeah. jobs or without access to education or without limits being put on that. And we must also remember that it's an absolute benefit to society to have young people with the breadth of experience. Mm. We want mm. our society to be quite diverse and we want our representatives mm. to be diverse. So giving young people with a broad range of experience uh. opportunities to, to uh, bring their experience and talk about their experience mm. more widely is a benefit. Can I change tack just a wee uh -huh. bit? Because in a previous life, Mary, you were involved with with Manchester City Council and the kind of rehabilitation of, of young people. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I guess journalism generally, journalists in particular, mm -hmm. have have a role to play to some extent in the rehabilitation of young people um, who've who've been in contact with the criminal justice system. And it's not it's not always the best record that we have to to show in that. In that. No, indeed. Um, a few years ago, as I was involved with the City Council in a forum where young people were given an opportunity to talk to media representatives about their representation in the press and that was print and broadcasting and disproportionately um, the language used, the terminology used and the types of activities young people were involved in were about criminal activities and this kind of mm. salacious desire to present young people as flawed and inherently mm. bad. Mm. Um, rather than looking at some of the positive contributions young people made to society. And that was from young people themselves. And an acknowledgement, I think, across the press as well, that that was a problem. Yes. Um, Jess, what do you think? Is, is, there, is, there, is the reputation deserved? I think it's probably a story of two halves in some ways. We were talking about this before we yeah. came on air, and, 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 and certainly for you to read national coverage and certain sections of the national media there is the, I would say that there is this reinforcement of a negative image of young people that, that feeds the kind of expectations of certain readers but Dave and I who both backgrounds in certainly provincial newspapers where your responsibility is to the community and you, you have good relationships with schools and colleges um, there is that kind of pressure to uh, and desire to uh, represent the achievements of young mm. people and you know we'd regularly uh, feature sporting achievements um, academic achievements and that mm. sort of thing um, and also I do recall doing lots of stories of perhaps young people who have had trouble in, in their past who've been rehabilitated and perhaps wanting to mm. educate the you know younger generations coming up and that could be quite a good positive story going forward but those kind of stories wouldn't necessarily make the the national news no not, not at all so yeah. I, I think it's, it's perhaps different representation in different 
sections of yeah. the media really and I'm sure going back to the earlier topic on Johnston Press this is one of mm. the risks as well is that without mm, yeah. that local voice we um, we're that. only yeah. hearing a very narrow section of the media reporting mm. on events that are local and of yeah I would say I think actually journalists are quite a distance mm. sometimes from their audiences mm. and I think that you know maybe more journalists should speak to more young mm. people actually and there should be more forums um, because it's only by doing so that you've become aware of actually yeah uh, that headline wasn't quite yeah. right. Mm-hmm. That 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 uh, that use of the term "yob" yes. really wasn't appropriate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if we can start thinking twice, I know we've mm-hmm. all got our ethics in it. So, um, but you do get into a certain mode of thinking until somebody stops you. So, yeah, yeah. 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 Well, um, we were discussing exactly this issue with the the postgrads um, earlier, just before we came to the just before I came to the studio, and it was interesting that, that their point of view on it. We we had the debate who were were um, were journalists working in, uh, to to help rehabilitation of young people, mm. or they were, were they working against? And one of the one of the series of articles that we looked at was Gary Young's reporting on knife crime in the yes. Guardian, mm. a really really in depth <clears throat> look at knife crime, um, particularly in, in London and and so on. And he did almost exactly what you were talking about Dave he was in contact with in in, in long term contact with a lot of families mm. both victims and, and uh, perpetrators if you like uh-huh. and, uh, involved in knife crime and it's fascinating stuff but it, it takes a massive commitment I think to do that it's, time, resource, yeah. it's a, it's a mm. time consuming process really but I think you're up, uh, knocking at an open door as well as far as young people are concerned because yeah. they're interested in the media they're interested in communication and they're yeah. interested in how they're represented yeah. so yeah. And yeah. certainly talking to our students and the sort of, you know, when they're at the stage of writing their own uh, portfolios and campaigns and they're interested in these mm. areas, they're definitely uh, keen to present positive mm. images of young people and representation, um, trying to counter maybe some of that negativity that, mm. that we th- we're yeah. talking about, you know. But also a strong sense of justice. Yes. You know, a strong yeah. sense of, you know, the purpose mm. of rehabilitation mm. is actually to give people a second chance. Yes. You know, it isn't yeah. to... And that in itself is a good story. Mm. Yes. Ah, you know, it's it actually is. good news. It is good news, mm. yeah. Okay, so um, a reminder you're listening to Bang to Rights from Manchester Metropolitan University's Journalism Unit. If you have a view on that, please let us know on Twitter at RightsBang. But back now to that report I mentioned at the top of the programme. Guidance both for members of the public and journalists on sexual offences from the press regulator IPSO. As I found out from IPSO's Head of Standards, Charlotte Irwin, the guidance is in two parts. We've published guidance for journalists on the reporting of sexual offences and alongside that information for survivors of sexual offences. And I think this all came out of a sort of a bigger project, really, that we launched at the beginning of this year, looking at the reporting of sexual offences more generally. It felt very timely um, with the Me Too campaign and the broader discussion around sexual offences in the media to to think about this issue. But also... um, one of it, one of the things that Ipso does, which I think doesn't get perhaps as much attention as it should, is we, um, my colleagues here at Ipso, give advice to editors and journalists on how to comply with the code before articles are even published. Um, and we get quite a lot of calls to that advice line from editors who want advice on how to comply with the law in relation to reporting sexual offences and the code. But we also speak to the public. You know, we do a lot of engagement with um, community organisations and individuals who are interested in reporting of a particular topic. And again, something that came through those conversations was a real interest amongst survivors in some information about how to engage effectively with the media. And it was really kind of 
bringing those two kind of requests for information from both journalists and editors and also from survivors that really got us to the point of where we produced these two documents. One of the things I think that, that sort of struck me, well, kind of reminded me in the document was the fact that um, people in sensitive cases, people involved in sensitive cases, whether they're victims or, vic or, victims or witnesses or whatever, are sometimes... Uh, shocked and upset by the amount of detail that may go into a, a report of that court hearing and you've kind of reminded journalists to be conscious of that haven't you yeah absolutely i mean i think i think it's you know it's, it's an interesting point you know we all read newspapers we all consume newspapers and magazines um, and in doing so we read a lot of content which might be about court reporting or about um inquests or whatever it is and then there's that moment when you're you yourself or your friend or family are actually caught up in that court report or it might be you who's 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 a victim on the stand or anything like that and i think there's suddenly that realization that actually this is about something that is affecting me directly or a friend or a family member. And I think people, you know, people generally don't go around their, in their daily lives thinking about what newspapers can and can't report on. So it felt really important for me for, for in terms of the document that we were producing for us to be able to say to members of the public, you know, it can be recorded on. But also, I think as a reminder to journalists that, you know, journalists might be doing court reporting every day because it's a really important part of journalism to go out and do that. But they might be doing court reporting every day, but just reminding them that, just because something's said in court doesn't mean that they can, you know, that, that they shouldn't be thinking about, well, what's the impact of the, on the person who's the victim or the witness in this case, you know, and are there legal protections, as in the case of, of sexual offences, that mean that I can't identify the victim? Now, one of the sections in the, in the, the document aimed at the general public is there's quite a lot of detail in there about waiving anonymity. Um, mm -hmm. And there, you know, that that leads on from what you said about people's right to to privacy and so on. Um, is that something that you you at Ipso get a lot of uh, complaints about? Um, no, interestingly, not really in relation to waiving of anonymity, but it's something that came up when we did engage. So we did quite a lot of engagement with survivors as part of preparing this document about. Um, Court about uh, sexual offences for survivors. And certainly something that came through those conversations a lot was both the survivor's experience where they've chosen to waive their anonymity, what that process felt like, what they what they kind of want, would have wanted to know if they were going through that again. But also for some survivors, you know, a real sort of lack of understanding about their options in terms of speaking to the media, the fact that you know, it's really important that survivors do have the opportunity to tell, to, to talk about what's happened to them, to talk about their experiences. We heard very powerful testimonial of how hearing other survivors talk about what's happened to them has had a great impact on, on other survivors in terms of encouraging them to speak out about their own experiences, but also that survivors shouldn't feel pressurized into waiving their anonymity or kind of giving details that they didn't want to give. And that was why we really wanted to explore this issue in quite a lot of detail, because it was something that those survivors that we spoke to said they were particularly interested in getting information on. Yeah, because it's something that's both required by law as well as ethically, that, that, that journalists should not put put survivors under any pressure if they if they are seeking anonymity absolutely absolutely and that you know uh, you know if, if somebody wants to waive their right to anonymity they have to do so in writing as well it can't just be you know sort of on the back of a conversation or anything like that There's, there has to be a sort of proper process there in place so that that's if, if you like the sort of public facing 
element of these two documents. What what about the the kind of new advice to to journalists or the way that you're framing the the, the established advice to journalists about um, reporting sexual offences? Yeah, so I think I think for me, in terms of how we really frame our guidance, we try to make it focused on the actual actual sort of editorial journalistic process. So really, here what we're trying to do with the guidance is. You know, recognizing that you know it's a fundamental principle open, of open justice that court proceedings are reported on, but that in this case, when you're reporting on sexual offences, there are, as you said, legal protections in place, and there are also certain relevant clauses of the code. Um, that's the editor's code of practice for those who, those who are less familiar. What we're really trying to do with the guidance is unpick those clauses of the code and then think about what sort of process should a journalist follow when they're writing a piece about sexual offences and kind of trying to sort of follow a process point so that it can be very much used by working journalists. Just going back a little bit to, I asked earlier on about uh, waiving anonymity and whether that was an issue that members of the public had raised with IPSO. Is coverage of sexual case sexual offences in court or sexual offences generally um, from the victim's point of view is that a source of a lot of complaints to Ipso? Um, certainly we do get complaints about reporting in this area and one of the things that we do within the standards function at Ipso is we actually monitor those complaints and it was partially because at the back end of last year we had four upheld complaints all about the reporting of sexual offences where those upheld complaints in combination with um, kind of the conversations that we were having with editors and journalists led us to say, okay, there there is an area that there's an issue here where we as Ipso want to do some more work. We want to help journalists to comply with the code. So it does come up certainly as as a, you know it's not it does come up from time to time in terms of complaints. And yes, certainly we've upheld some complaints which which were breaches of the code in relation to. Um, they published information that was likely to lead to the identification of a victim of sexual assault. Right, right. Okay. I mean, are there any other areas where you where you think um, documents like this, uh, there's a need for more documents like this, more kind of public explanation or rather explanation for the public about the Ipso code and how it works? Are there any other areas that you might be looking into doing a similar sort of exercise? Yeah. So, I mean, I think I think we are we want to be targeted with our guidance. You know, we recognize that journalists, like a lot of professionals, are extremely busy. There are a lot of pressures in the newsroom to publish and publish quickly. Um, But it's also really but we also want to help journalists to comply with the code. So to date, we've published guidance on three topics on the reporting of coverage of transgender individuals, on how to report deaths and inquests sensitively, and on the use of information taken from social media, all priority areas where journalists were saying to us that they wanted some advice on how to comply with the code. Um, Before the end of this year, so next month, we're going to be publishing some guidance on the reporting of suicide as well. And then next year, we're going to be looking at um, helping journalists in relation to the reporting of Islam and Muslims in the UK as a priority area. But it's really important for me as well that we don't just produce the guidance and it doesn't just sit on our website. You know, we want to engage um, with our podcast. Obviously, it's great that we've been invited to come along and speak to you today. We also deliver training in newsrooms and we're keen to find as many ways as possible of getting our guidance into the hands of working journalists as well. Okay, well, we'll certainly encourage the students to look at those ones that are already on the website and and the ones that are forthcoming over the next couple of months. So, Charlotte Irwin, thanks very much indeed for coming on Bang to Rights. 
Thanks very much for having me, Peter. Charlotte Irwin from Ipso, and we'll almost certainly hear more from them in future editions. In the meantime, if you want to look at the guidance yourself in detail, you'll find it on Ipso's website at ipso.co.uk slash media. So just before we close for this week, Jez, Dave, our usual roundup of what's in store for students in the coming week in their law and ethics lectures. What have you got, Jez? We are, I'm just thinking too, uh, media law and regulation next week. We're going to be interestingly looking at uh, reporting of juveniles in the, in the courts, so an introduction to that. And we're also going to be starting to revise what we've been doing so far this term. So yeah. the end is in sight. Yeah, we're looking at revision <laughs> as well. Dave, what have you got coming up? Uh, in about half an hour, copyright. <laughs> uh, tricky area for everyone. Uh, I'll, take that, I'll take that as a hint. Time to, yeah. time to go. Next week on the podcast, Dave and I will be at the annual conference of the NCTJ, the National Council for the Training of Journalists. We booked that ages ago, and it's coming up really yes. fast all of a sudden. Now, if we can get the tech to work, and if we can find some Wi-Fi to upload the thing, listen out for a special edition of the podcast from the conference venue in Harlow this time next week at the usual time Thursday evening remember if you subscribe to Bang to Rights on Apple Podcasts it'll pop up automatically in your podcast feed you can also find us on Stitcher or you can search for Bang to Rights on the MMU Northern Quota SoundCloud feed that's all one word MMU Northern Quota please give us a rating helps spread the word and helps others to find us so that's it from us for this week. We are bang to rights. Thanks, Jez. Thanks, Pete. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Pete. And a big thanks to Mary Maguire from Manchester Metropolitan <laughs> Law School. Me. Thanks, thanks very much indeed for coming on. Remember, you can tweet us at RightsBang. Let us know if there are topics or issues from the lectures or from your reading which you want us to cover in future editions. But in the meantime, thanks for listening. We'll see you soon.